Good evening. Well, I hope everybody's had a wonderful Lord's Day today so far. Well, the rain last night, I guess it's brought in some cooler weather. Boy, it's been a big change, a difference a day makes. So I'm sure everybody's hopefully enjoyed a little bit cooler temperatures outside and a little brief shower before we, as we were coming in. I know I enjoy when Sundays roll around. Um, for most of us, it can turn into a day of rest or also a day of rejoicing. But it also, it's a day of enlightenment. It's a day of joy in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But for some, Sundays can, can, they can vary quite a bit. It can be hectic for young couples, dealing with kids, jobs, lack of sleep. It can be trying for others. Maybe it's because of medical issues, dealing with day-to-day -day pain, so much it even, so it even makes it hard to get around just to get up to go to church. Or those who work shift work, causing issues with trying to be here. Or maybe those that had to work a night shift or a, or a closing shift where they had to work late last night. There are numerous issues, life issues that we all deal with at one time or another. And just know that, well, we're all glad we're all here tonight and we're happy we can all come together and worship God in spirit and in truth tonight. I mentioned the weather a minute ago and I kind of was taken by surprise. Eric mentioned the same thing, but uh, I love to, when there's storms especially, I love to sit out on the front porch and watch storms come in, especially if the, the house is blocking it and I don't get wet. But uh, just to notice the awesome power that's in nature that, that God provides, just to sit and be amazed at that power and that force of nature. And we sometimes, you know, we sing that song, have you ever seen Jesus my Lord? Like Eric mentioned, have you ever sat and watched a sunset have you ever stood at the ocean? Then you've seen Jesus my Lord. And those are powerful words. I really think they ought to add a verse about watching a thunderstorm <laughs> or watching nature. But I love to sit around and I really love to watch nature. Uh, watch life, watch people, watch little kids play. Watch the power again of a thunderstorm, watch nature. Just to see how awesome our Lord God really is. If you find yourself with a few spare minutes, and I know how life gets hectic for some, just sit back and watch. Watch nature and know that there is a God. But we've all been through a very trying year this last year with this COVID stuff. I know I mentioned it last time. And hopefully as things are settling down, everyone's starting to slowly get out and enjoy all the activities like we used to do. Going to church, eating at restaurants, maybe going to the mall, which I hate, or just getting out and enjoying life again. But as we do so, 
We need to take this opportunity to getting back to doing the Lord's work. Now that we're starting to be around more people again, we need to remember that the way we live our lives, it's an example to others. We need to remember that sometimes just a simple act of kindness, it can make or be that spark that changes someone's life. Or more importantly, it's time that we start talking to others about Christianity. It's time we get back spreading the gospel. And it's time to get back to doing the work of the Lord. And that's what my sermon is based on tonight. But more specifically, one specific issue that I keep seeing popping up as I talk to people, as I meet people. And again, this is just from my own personal experiences. But when I talk to people about their salvation or trying to spread God's word, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. And we'll start there. We'll take our text, text from uh, chapter 7. But while you're turning there to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'd like to take a minute to recount just a basic experience that I keep running into. I'm sure just like everyone here, you've ran into someone or an instance where you've had to deal with somebody that's panhandling, asking for change, asking for money. I know more and more when I'm in Tulsa or in those areas like that, it happens to me more and more often. Uh, I usually try to keep around five bucks worth of quarters change in my pocket. And when somebody hits me up like that, that I can just pull out, you know, whatever change I have and give it to them. And it seems to help. But at one of my appointments is over, over west uh, in the Sepulpa Sand Springs area. I usually stop, at, yeah, I get there early, so I usually stop at a convenience store somewhere, get something to drink, kill some time till we get closer to the appointment time. But in this process, I keep running into the same person, this same young man. He comes up every time, asks me for any spare change that I might have, after doing a little asking around, I found out he's not homeless. He doesn't work, except at odd jobs. He seems to be fairly intelligent, but you can tell he has a drug addiction, which is probably why he can't hold a job down. But when I run into him, I try to give him, you know, whatever change I have in my pocket. But whatever, what he does next, it, the first time took me by surprise, and I, I've had this happen several times. He usually says, God bless, after I hand him the change. And that opens a door because now when people, when they do that, because it opens that door, it allows me to ask him, do you really mean it? Or are you just saying it to make me feel better? They usually, it takes them by surprise, takes them off guard, not knowing how to respond because Truth be known, they are probably only saying it just to make people feel good about what they've done. But I also try to follow up with if they really mean God bless and if they know what it means. Sometimes this allows it to open up a door to, add, to talk to these people and to start that conversation with them. Most people, they just try to get away from these people. But 
If it's done with genuine concern, genuine compassion, it can be a way to start a conversation about a person's salvation. But what I find out is that 99% of people, no matter what their condition, they're going to say that they are very religious and that they are saved. With this young man, at some point, someone has told this young man that all he has to do is to say that he believes in God and, and say this sinner's prayer to him and that he's saved. To me, that's a tragedy. It's the most cruel thing someone can do to another person saying they, they can believe in God and saying that they don't even have to open the Bible, they don't have to do anything but that somehow they're saved just by saying that sinner's prayer. One response that I got was, well, it just seems right. In my heart, I know I'm saved. And I usually let them read Proverbs 14, 30, 14 12 and 30, 12. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in, it's what is the way of death. Proverbs 30, 12 says, there's a gener generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its own filthiness. Again, it's about the most tragic and, and shameful thing I think that somebody can do to another person is to deceive them like this. But this leads me to the basis of my sermon tonight, and that is the action or the act of repentance. Before we get too far into that, listen to what scripture says about the importance of repentance. In the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record how John the Baptist went about calling all to repentance. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke records for us in chapter 24 the words of Christ to the apostles prior to his ascension. In 24, Luke 24, 46 and 47 reads, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Luke also records for us the words of the apostle Peter in the book of Acts. Acts 2.38, we all know that verse. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Then again in Acts chapter eight, Peter tells Simon the sorcerer in Acts 22, Repent, therefore, of your wicked, wickedness, and pray God, perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. 
As a matter of fact, the word repent or repentance is used some 50 odd times in the New Testament, depending on the translation that you have. So repentance is a very part, very important part of a Christian's life. So much so that repentance, it is a major part of the life of a Christian. Over and over again, repentance is emphasized in the New Testament. Acts 17.30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then again in Romans 2.4, or you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Again, you can see the importance of repentance in Christianity. And we could go on and on. I'd heard a quote, and I forgot the gentleman's name just right before I came up here, but during the uh, restoration period, when God closed the gate to the Garden of Eden and the you know, Garden of Paradise, he opened the door for repentance. And that is so true. But that brings me to the main text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll start with verse 1. Our main focus is going to be on verses 8 through 12, but we need to get the whole point. We need to include the whole, set, whole scripture starting with verse 1. I chose this because it's going to show just how much the Apostle Paul truly cared for the saints, especially at Corinth. And these verses, you just hear Paul pouring out his heart, pleading with and for the saints here at Corinth. It also is one of the best scripture, in my opinion, that shows all aspects and the importance of repentance. So if you would, let's start with, with verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, 
so that I rejoiced even more. Verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In verses one through four, and I know that's that's a long, kind of a long text for a sermon, but in verses one through four, Paul is pouring out his heart to the people. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to address problems that are that had arisen in Corinth. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul in chapters 2, one, verses 1 through 6, and also in chapter 3, 18 through 19, he had to address the issue of some of the Christians at Corinth were evidently, they were fascinated with the philosophy of the world. And it appears that these people wanted the church to adopt or to adapt this thinking to the same kind of wisdom one would find in the marketplaces. And it sort of sounds like something that goes on today that might that happens to the church with people wanting to however they put it modernize the church or to, to make it a better fit for today's wisdom that wisdom of the world so Paul had to address these issues in his first letter to the church of Corinth and now in his second letter he is opening his heart and letting the people know that he hated to have to address them this way and he hated to address the problems, but at the same time, Paul is pouring out his heart to them. He's telling them just how much he cares and at the same time, just how proud of them he actually is because they were able to overcome those issues. But picking up back at verse five, Paul is in the process, or in the previous verses, he, he had to defend himself, and he had to defend the work he had done at Corinth. So now Paul's picking back up at the situation at hand in verse 5. As Paul continues, he tells of the trials and tribulations they suffered. He describes, they, he describes how they experienced no rest, how they experienced troubles, conflicts, and fears. He tells that they were comforted by the arrival of Titus. 
it also comforted Paul to hear from Titus of their earnest desire, their mourning and earnest zeal for the apostle Paul and how it made Paul rejoice. But now here in verse eight, we get to what I consider the real meat of the issue. Paul tells them that even if he made them sorry when they got his previous letter, he isn't sorry, even though it did trouble Paul to write it. But Paul had to address the problems. Verse nine, Paul gets to the point. He is rejoicing because their sorrow had led them to repentance. And not just sorrow, but sorrow in a godly manner that produces repentance. And then verse 10 spells out, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So what's the difference between sorrow and godly sorrow? I guess more importantly, what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Verse 10 says that their godly sorrow produced repentance, which leads to salvation. But that worldly sorrow produces death. I think if, if that's the point, then I want to know what godly sorrow is. Because I want godly sorrow in order to obtain salvation versus worldly sorrow, which produces death. I don't think we want that. The point Paul is making here is that just being sorry doesn't cut it. Just being sorry may make us feel better but it still leads to spiritual death. The difference is, is that godly sorrow, it also includes conviction. The conviction that we have sinned and we are changing, we have to change. The best example of that is, is Acts chapter two. Can't think of anything better. The apostle Peter, in that great Pentecostal, Pentecost sermon, Peter told them of the Lord's death and resurrection. He tells them that they have just crucified the Son of God. And the Bible says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I imagine that was a plea with heartfelt sorrow. They were pricked to their hearts not just sorry, but heartfelt sorrow all the way to their, that pricked them all the way to their hearts. Now that's conviction. There was, there was the fact that their, that their conscience knew what they had done, the tragedy and sin they had just committed. By their own hands, they had crucified the Christ, the Christ they had been waiting and looking for for the last several hundred years. Their hearts were cut to the quick, cut to the heart. And following that conviction, Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So conviction precedes repentance. 
simply it comes before it. One can experience it and still not be penitent. But in second place, repentance, repentance is not fear. Don't misunderstand me. There are different kinds of fear. First of all, there's fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 tells us, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. In the book of Proverbs, we learn that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God, it's the very beginning of knowledge. It's the very beginning of wisdom. That means that you may be able to write, write down your name. I know people have various degrees, various levels of education. You can be as smart as you want. You can have that PhD, that doctorate. But if you don't fear God, then you are spiritually lost. The Apostle Peter said, it is true that I perceive God to be no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness, he is accepted with him. But each one of us, we must fear the Lord. When we talk about that fear, that's reverence, that's respect, awe, submission, obedience. The best example that I can think of is we're not to fear God like we would fear like a car crash or a, or a drowning or a tornado, but we're to fear God by respecting him by respecting God's authority. We're to have reverence for him. We are, we are to be obedient to him. Fear of the Lord can also mean to be afraid. That is, if we become disobedient and rebellious to his commandments. Matthew 10, 28 says, fear not them that kill the body but that are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, destroy the soul and body in hell. Now that verse carries the idea of being scared or being afraid if you're built disobedient to the Lord. And fear of God certainly includes and embraces repentance, but fear alone Fear alone won't produce repentance. James 2.19 says, If thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe, and they tremble. Demons tremble. Demons are scared. And I've never read of one of them repenting. We see this idea of fear alone not not producing repentance in the book of Acts concerning Paul and him going before Felix. In Acts 24, 24, verses 24 and 25, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, 
self-control, and judgment to come. Felix was afraid. And he said, go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. I've heard several sermons with this, with, on this fact, this scripture included. Was Felix afraid? Yes. Was Felix repentant? No. At least not in any example, anything that's ever been recorded. Is never recorded anywhere where Felix came to repentance. The person has to come to the realization that he is lost before he can ever come to godly sorrow, which produces repentance. And we've seen all these examples where fear alone, fear alone does not produce repentance. There has to be conviction. There has to be godly, heartfelt, heart-pricking sorrow which produces repentance. Just like that young man I mentioned back at the beginning. Yeah, the man, this young man, he's, he's sorry for the life that he's living. He truly is, he's told me so but he's unwilling to change his life. He's unwilling to have godly sorrow or repentance. He simply will not change his life. He simply isn't going to stop his drug use and come to any type of repentance. I mean, the young man's lost and he'll remain lost until he comes to the understanding that he must change his life in order to be saved. He must be more than sorry. He must reach a point that knowing he is lost and that he must change his life and repent before he can be saved. But again, even more troubling, like I said at the beginning, someone's convinced and told this young man that he can be saved just simply by saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that if he simply says some prayer that can't even be found anywhere in the Bible, no reference to it anywhere, but that if he says that, he can be saved, and he does not have to change his life. Someone's convinced him that he can be saved and still take drugs, that he can be saved and he can still deal drugs. He can still be a petty thief and steal from people to support his drug habit. And still, he's convinced he's saved because he said that simple prayer. Again, this young man, he's very intelligent. He knows right from wrong. He isn't mentally disabled. He just prefers to live the life that he's living right now. He's taken and bitten into that, that it's a disease, it's a sickness, and, and maybe there is some gene that triggers, but that didn't make him that. He did that with his own actions. Simply put, young man's lost, and he'll remain lost until he comes to the realization 
that he is in a lost state, all because someone failed to tell him the truth. The lesson we need to take away from this situation is this. We do no one any favors by trying to soften down or to water down the gospel. We must tell people the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but scripture. I've had conversations on this with, with different people that truly believe that if we can just get people dumped, for lack of a better term, then over time they will come to full repentance, and that's just not that's just not the case. That some people say we're we're being too hard, being too difficult by following the examples given to us by the apostles. That the examples like in Acts chapter two are just mere suggestions. That we need to update our ways, become more modern, get in step with the times, one person told him, that we need to be more like the denominational world so that we can have all the bells and whistles and do everything else and not be so hard on people, not be so legalistic. If we just relax our ways and be more accepting, then we could get more converts. And by this person, more converts means a higher budget, which is wrong. I think I'm going to stick with what God says to do. And I think I'll just stick with following and obeying what the Bible says. You know, just like the Apostle Paul had to deal with some of the people wanting to adapt the church to accept a more current or a modern way, a more worldly way in 1 Corinthians, we too, we still have to deal with the same issues today. We always will, that will always be an issue. And just like whoever deceived that young man I mentioned there at the beginning, that person or those persons, they'll have to stand before God and explain their actions as to why they deceive people. But in closing, I want to leave you just with a couple of thoughts. One of my favorite verses, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It says, I charge you, therefore, before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, preach the word. You know, as we hopefully get our lives back to some sort of normalcy, you know, which we're returning to after, after this COVID issue, we need to do a few things. Live our lives as that shining light on a hill. Let our light so shine before men. Let's be the example 
to the world of what Christianity looks like. Nobody's perfect. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all are imperfect. There was only one that was, that was perfect, and that was Christ. So as we get out and start to meet people again, let's get back to doing the Lord's work. Take those opportunities to talk to others about Christ. Take that opportunity to talk to someone about the gospel. It may be something as simple as take that opportunity to help someone. Just a simple gesture of kindness might be that act that opens up a door. We need to make sure that we live our lives the way Christ showed us to. You know, at every, at every service, we always want to extend an opportunity to anyone who needs prayers of the church, anyone who may have made that decision to be baptized. Maybe it's someone that just your life hasn't been the way you thought it should be. Maybe you need the support of the church. Maybe we need to confess our sins. And that's, I think that's one thing we don't do enough of is to confess our sins to each other. There's scripture on that. But again, we want to extend that opportunity to this time. If you have any of the needs for anything like, please come forward now as we stand and sing.